Welcome to the Time Machine. Experience the cancer journey through the eyes of the traveler. Welcome back to the Time Machine. For today's podcast, I want to share a story I first shared a year ago uh, this month. It was during a time of our life that our family has come to call the Deep Waters. And it's my hope that this speaks to people who are now living in uncertain times. This is Deep Waters. The stage is set, the curtain rises. Let us begin. I'm going to warn you in advance about the story I'm about to tell you. It may be unsettling, but necessary. It may take a little bit longer than the first two stories, but for good reason. This is goodbye. We got a very unsettling phone call recently from my doctor, and he said the chemotherapy that we were doing was not able to eliminate the mutant gene, the blast, the gift remains. So because of that, I'm going to be leaving in a hurry. I'm going to be jumping in my vehicle and slamming all 300 horsepower to the ground and I ride those horses as fast as I can. I'm going to Seattle. A very important appointment in Seattle. When you get news like that, it makes you think I'm going to Seattle for a very specific reason. I'm trying to elude the fate that awaits me here. I'm going to Seattle to attempt to outrun death. So I've had many thoughts rolling through my head recently, and the dominant thought is of ships, partly because of a dream I had, partly because I'm building a ship with my son, and partly because of three specific stories about ships that I just can't shake. So first the dream, then the ships, then goodbye. The dream is this. In the dream, I'm in a boat. My brother, Paul, P.T., Paul Timothy. P.T. is the captain of the ship. I'm in the back with my son, Josiah. I'm surrounded by family, and and we're on North 27th. It's a dream. (laughs) And my brother's a lawbreaker, so it's possible. So we're headed up North 27th in this boat, and it's beautiful outside. The sky is, is blue, and as we're moving, we go through the hospital corridor where I get my infusions, and as we move by, and I see that off to the left, we start to move up North 27th, and you see the rims, 
and this blue, beautiful sky, the 406, God's country. It's just beautiful. And then suddenly it's just ripped open, and through it comes the hull of a ship. It's a destroyer ship, and it, it comes violently through, and it rips this hole in space-time, and the ocean follows it. And it's billowing and rolling, and it's a deluge that comes down over the rims, and it starts to roll and billow all the way down North 27th, right at us. My brother turns the boat quickly, and we go the other way. And I remember thinking, this is the end. This is it. But I had this peace, and I remember thinking, it is well. It is well. It is well with my soul. Peace. I looked back over my shoulder, and in an instant, I saw this giant transformer foot, just robot, crash down right on North 27th, and it was enormous, and it, it reached from, from the uh, tennis courts all the way across to the basketball gymnasium, and, it, and as soon as it hit the ground, the deluge and the threat was over, and I woke. felt so real. Like I, in the dream, it was the end. And I, I told my wife about the dream. And, and I went and I sat down at the, at the kitchen table and, and uh, I grabbed this box. And it was a, a, a model I got from Central Hobbies. And uh, my boy loves robots. He loves Legos. He loves to build Gideon. And so I had gotten this like nine months before. I went there with a friend, for a friend, to get something, and I, I bought it because I thought he might like it. And the only reason I got a ship was because it was, you know, the cheapest one there. <laughs> I didn't know if he was going to like it, so I was like, get the cheap one. So I got it and grabbed it, and we took it home and painted it, and, and um, you know, then kind of diagnosis hit, and then the, we were going to do it out in the garage and winter hit, and one day I'm like, man, we need to do this. So I... I put it out on the table, and, and so I looked at it, and I never really looked at it before, and it said PT-109. I was like, hmm, and it said, uh, commanded by John F. Kennedy. I was like, wow, I didn't know that. I, John F. Kennedy and has been something, I've, I've watched and listened to him, and, and so I, I didn't know the story, so I, I started to research the story. And so here's, here's the story of the, the, the PT-109 and Jack Kennedy. So 1941, a little history. You, America's not in the war. The Imperial Japanese Army, they attack Pearl Harbor, draw America into the war. You have all these young men that want to fight. Jack is one of them. But his dad's, you know, um, has some power, and he kind of keeps him at bay at a desk, he's in, in the military and, and intelligence with the Navy, but he keeps wanting to get into the fight, so he eventually volunteers for these PT boats. And so the PT boat has 12 to 14 people on the boat. His particular boat was him and 12, was him and his 12. And um, he, um, the significance of the, the PT boat and what really drew these guys to the boats were they were really agile and they were, um, they were like the cavalry of the sea, and they sounded really loud like a Harley, and they were kind of, you know, um, they wanted to be a part of it, and they wanted to engage, but these boats were tor torpedo boats, and they were made to engage 
um, close battle with destroyers. And so very dangerous. So he gets put, um, as a commander, they take him to the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific. Solomon Islands were very important because it was a, a place where um, scattered through these islands, they could, they, could, they could drop off men and cargo, and it was a place for, for where the Imperial Japanese had taken over, and the, the Americans were trying to get in on that. And they had this, this uh, like I think it was the Blacklet Strait, where they called the Tokyo Express, where these giant ships, these ships are huge. These destroyers are as big as a first interstate building. And they would be able to slip in there. In 30 minutes, they could drop... 100 tons of cargo and hundreds of men. And so they could come in in the dark of night and then go out and into safety. And so Jack was commanding his, and there was 15 other ships, and they got intelligence that said they were coming and, and there was going to be a shipment, and they were to, to engage. And so they go out, and they're kind of scattered. They don't really have um, really good protocol and, and communications. And the ships at that time, they didn't realize until later in the war that the torpedoes, when they would shoot them, they would, the depths were wrong, and sometimes they would shoot, and, and most of the time they weren't early in the war hitting. So a lot of these PT boats went out, and they shot, and they shot, and they turned back around when they unloaded. And, and um, so there was a little disorganization, and it was dark. And um, Jack, um, commanding his ship, he put his in idle, and it was black, dark, with, with, with a moonless night. And so he just idled back to kind of see what to do next, didn't have really direct commands, and he didn't want to be caught by radar. And so as he's sitting there idling out of the darkness, comes the Japanese destroyer, the Amajiri, and it comes bolting at him so fast, they have seconds to try to respond, and boom, big giant explosion, the boat blows up, all the guys in the water, the other PT boats that saw it, when they got back, they asked, are there any survivors? They're like, there's no way. Like, it blew up. And so the men are in the water. Two die instantly, but the rest are on the hull of the ship and whatever they can to, to stay there. Some are burnt. They've swallowed gasoline, and, and they're injured, and they're in shark-infested water, in the deep water, in the dark, and... Nobody's coming for them. They don't know that. So they're in the deep water all night. Comes daytime, they realize nobody's coming. So Jack sees an island and decides they're going to swim to that. As a commander, he makes the call. He has an injured guy with him, and so he takes, his, takes like a rope or part of his, his uh, life vest and puts it in his mouth. He's a strong swimmer, and he swims, and it's like a five-hour swim. Now, they're already injured. They've been in the water, and... No food and water, of course, all night. And they make the swim. And when they get close to this island, they, they don't know if it's inhabited by the, the Japanese or not. And if they do, they're going to be facing gunfire or their POWs. But they have nowhere to go. So they get on the island. And quickly, they go from the beach into the cover of the trees. So they're not seen. And once there, they get to kind of regroup. And then they look around and realize quickly it's a tiny uninhabited island in this, you know, in the Solomon Islands, there's many little ones, and this one is so small, there's no water, there's no coconut trees, so there's, they're stuck. So yes, they're safe for the moment, 
but there's no hope of rescue and there's no way to sustain themselves. So Jack has the idea that maybe he can swim out at night into the areas where these PT boats patrol and with a light he can maybe, you know, signal one. So he goes out swimming in the dark, in the, in the deep, deep waters, shark infested, hungry, no water, and currents that could take him out. Goes out, no ships are there, comes back. They realize they gotta do something, there's other islands. They decide to swim to another island. Same deal, when you get to that island, you don't know what's waiting for you. Luckily, it's uninhabited, and someone had left some provisions there, like a canoe and some water and a few things so they could eat. So he takes that back, and, and the guys can sustain a little bit. But they're still stuck, and there's other islands, so they realize they gotta go again. So they go again, and they find an island, and they see people on the shore. And so they're at the mercy of, of whatever they find when they get there. Um, they get there, and it's the, not the Japanese, but it's the islanders that are native. And they're not friends with the Japanese, and they allow them in. And Jack had learned a few words and could communicate a little bit. So they agreed to help, and he took a coconut and carved his name in it and some other information of how many were there so they could be saved. These guys, these islanders, took it in a long canoe ride. They had a canoe that they had made out of a tree. They took that through the waters. The Japanese um, are all through that area, but they allowed them to go through because you know they're islanders. They get the coconut to American intelligence, and they come and they're saved, and it's like a week, over a week that they're there. And uh, they're saved, he becomes a war hero, he gets medals, he gets you know, huge popularity, ends up being able to you know, use a lot of that um, as he uh, is elected president. And uh, I think about the story, and it's just so improbable that he would be smashed in by this destroyer and shark-infested waters in the deep, and they survive. It's like the will of, of these guys is unbelievable. And so they survive all of this, and I think about that, of how improbable in the South Pacific, surrounded by enemy in, in a foreign place, that he survives. And then... On November 22nd, 1963, flies into Love Field, Dallas, Texas, Dallas, Texas. The heart of America, surrounded by his, his own people in secret service, the most powerful man on the planet with the most powerful army. And here he is with the top down driving, and he takes that left-hand turn by the book depository down into Daly Plaza. If you've seen that imagery, I'm sure everyone here has that grainy footage, the Zapruder film, and you see the waving, and you know what's coming. And every time I see it, I hope it's different. I hope that he moves or he, he ducks. Or, and I, inside, I'm like, put your head down. Duck, duck, duck. And he never does. And every time, there comes that moment where he goes, and grabs his neck where the first shot goes through. His wife reacts and then 
public execution of the most powerful man on the planet Earth, and that image is just seared into the, the mind and the conscience of all Americans that have watched it and seen it and the trauma that comes with it, and you have that moment of, how is that possible? How? You should be protected. You should have had a top on, and what if this, what if that, what if... You know, why did they turn here? And all of the questions and all those things that come up. How does a guy survive in shark-infested waters after being hit by a destroyer, stranded on a desert island? How does a man survive that? And then how does death say now? And when that shot rang out, and Camelot was over, things changed in America, and things changed with people. Public execution, people had to engage death. I think of that and the what ifs, and it reminds me of a story from antiquity, a story of the merchant of Baghdad who sends his servant to the marketplace for provisions. The servant goes to the marketplace, and as he's in the marketplace, it's busy, it's bustling, and he, he's jostled in the crowd, and he's violently moved by a figure who turns, and when the figure turns, he looks into the cold, dark eyes of death himself, and death reaches for him, and he flees, and he, he comes running back to the merchant, and he's shaking, and he is white, and he has no provisions in, 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 in the merchant. What has happened to you? What has happened? What is wrong? He said, when I was at the marketplace, I was jostled in the crowd, and it was death, and death reached at me in a threatening way. And so I ran, and I came here. Give me your fastest horse. Give me your fastest horse, and let me ride. And I will leave, and I will flee the fate that I have here. And I'll go to Samara, and I will elude death. He says, yes. He loves his servant. He gives him the horse. Off he rides as fast as he can. He digs in, and they're gone. And still needing provisions, the merchant goes to the marketplace, and he's grieved. He's seen what has happened. He has questions, and he sees death, and he has a boldness to go ask, why? I sent my, my servant here to get provisions, and my servant said that, that you reached for him in a threatening way. Why? And he said, no. Dad said, no, that's, that's not it at all. I, it wasn't a gesture of, or of a threat. It was of startlement. I was startled. I was astonished to see your servant here, the marketplace in Baghdad. I was astonished to see him because I have an appointment, appointment with him tonight in Samara. Can't outrun death. Death comes to us all. It's part of the gift of life. It comes with it. Death makes dust of us all. It's part of the deal. Two more ship stories, and then goodbye. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago. And in 1870, he lost his son. He had a wife and daughters. His, his son died of a fever. 
and he was grieved. And then in 1871, the great Chicago fire happens. And he loses a bunch of his holdings. He's grieving the loss of his son. Now he has all this financial stress. Now he's a deeply religious man. He's a, an elder in the Presbyterian Church, and he's, he's friends with D.L. Moody, who at that time was this evangelist that was known worldwide. And as they struggled to try to heal, decided that it was time for his family to go on a vacation and to get away. And so they, they, they decided to, he booked a steamship for his four daughters and his wife and himself to go to Europe. And D.L. Moody was actually there and they were going to meet up with friends and go through this healing process and just get away from all of this suffering. As fate would have it, zoning issues come. He has problems with more of his holdings and he decides to send his wife and the, and the four daughters ahead and said, I'll meet you as soon as I take care of this. They board the steamship. Four nights later, out in the middle of the ocean in the deep, deep water, in the shipping lane, on November 22nd, 1873, 90 years to the day from when that fateful left-hand turn into Daly Plaza. In the dead of night, it's dark and moonless. There's no visibility. The lock urn emerges out of the darkness and rams into their ship, splits it in half. It's chaos. People are running to try to be saved. They get to the deck. They're trying to pull off the, the uh, lifeboats, but they recently painted the boat, and they're adhered to the, to the boat. They can't pull them off. Finally, some, some of the men that are strong enough, they rip these, these lifeboats, and they put them down. Anna has the four kids, 11, 9, 7, and 5. And she doesn't, she doesn't take a boat. She doesn't feel like she should push people out of the way. So the lucky few get in the boat, and they get pushed off, and they're going to get to safety when the mass of the boat goes, <laughs> splits them, and down they go to the dark waters below. And the boat starts to swirl and it kind of starts to cause a current as it's starting to sink and go down and hundreds there's over 300 people over 260 end up going down to the bottom accounts say that Anna had a hold of of one of her daughters and that her garment just slipped away down she went swallowed up by the sea Two men had two of her other daughters, and as they swam for safety and were close to the boats, it was wet, and their hands just, and they swirled down to the deep, 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 deep waters. Anna somehow was saved. She's distraught. She's lost all four daughters. She gets to the ship that gets to the shore, and then she sends the telegram to her husband says, saved alone, what do I do? He says, I'm coming, gets on the next ship four days later, 
In the middle of the night, he gets the, the captain comes and says, this is where the ship went down. Your babies, this is where they, they rest. He gets up, he goes to the front of the boat. Can't imagine losing all your children, being a servant of God, going. Can't imagine, think of the rage or the anger that would. And he gets to the front of the boat and he says these words When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever the cost, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he pens one of the most famous hymns of all time, that in the middle of death and losing all of this, he still says it is well because of who he serves. And I know when I got my diagnosis, I remember listening to how great thou art over and over, and it is well with my soul. One more ship. 2,000 years ago in the Sea of Galilee, in the back of the ship, the master sleeps, in the front, the disciples. A great tempest comes, blackness over the sky, the water rises up, starts to billow and roll, it starts to rock the boat back and forth and back and forth and they're terrified. They're in the deep, deep waters and they, they know that they're very close to death. They don't know what to do, so they go, they wake the master. And he rises. He'll do that again. And he comes to the forward, to the front of the boat. And with authority, he speaks. And he says, peace, be still. It is still. The clouds are gone. The water is flat and smooth. And the path is straight. The path to life. And they say, who is this man that speaks to the storm and to the sea, and it obeys? See, my family right now is in a boat that's being rocked to and fro. There's a great tempest around us. But I want you all to know this. It is well, it is well with my soul. And when I get a little bit of the fear, and some of that happened last night, I just speak with authority, peace, be still. It doesn't mean I'm not going to die, but I have peace. I have peace. Because the storms come. Everyone has that left-hand turn to Daily Plaza. It's come for all of us. Now, every storm, they say every cloud has a silver lining. And the silver lining for us is, got the phone call that there's a match. And the match gives us a path to life. 
Now, it's dangerous, it can die in radiation, it can die in chemo, it can die in the transplant, and can die after from complications. So there is a risk of death, it's a path to life. The way I see it, I have a path to life either way. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if my trip and my appointment in Seattle, if the transplant takes, it's a path to life. But if my appointment in Seattle is actually an appointment in Samara, I still have a path to life. I have a path to life either way. Now, I hope to be here, and I plan to be here. I plan to be here August 12th at Montana Gallery with Tyler and with Claire, with Ryan and my friends. I plan to be there to tell a story about what has happened in this time. But if that trip to Seattle is actually a trip to Samara, then this is goodbye. But I believe this is goodbye for now. That's what I believe. So, invite you all to be at Montana Gallery on the 12th of August. I hope to see you all there. Unless, of course, unless you have an appointment in Samara. Thank mm -hmm. you.